What are we looking at here is a film review podcast. There will be significant spoilers in every episode, so if you haven't seen the movies I'm discussing, please do pause here and go see them before continuing. I talk about all kinds of films and all kinds of topics, so some content may not appeal to you. You can check out the content warnings in the show notes and decide if this episode is right for you. What are we looking at here? everybody. Welcome to the show. Today we're looking at redemption and what it means to be redeemed. We'll be discussing Radius, the Star Wars saga, the 2005 film Constantine, and 28 Days Later. So if you haven't seen those films, proceed at your own risk. Why are we looking at 28 Days Later? There isn't really a redemption arc for any of the characters there. None of the main characters have done anything wrong. In fact, given how such desperate times might call for some pretty drastic measures, they seem to be sticking pretty closely together and doing right by each other, even at risk to themselves. But there's an element in 28 Days Later, at the end, after Jim has been let out of the compound and left for dead, a shifting in the way the audience, and Jim, view the soldiers. Twenty-eight days later follows Jim, Selina, Frank, and Hannah as they make their way out of zombie-infested London to a military compound in the north that's been broadcasting a radio message about the answer to infection being there and inviting people to join them there. It sounds like a great idea until Frank gets infected on their travels and has to be sacrificed, leaving Jim with the two women. The three of them go to the compound and are initially treated very well, but over the next several hours it becomes clear that the soldiers, all men, had been trying to lure unsuspecting women. When Jim finds out these plans, he tries to intervene and is quickly knocked unconscious and locked up. One of the soldiers, who also objected to his colleague's plans, is locked up with Jim, and he's expounding on how unlikely it is that England's zombie outbreak would have become global. The island would have been easy to quarantine, and the rest of the world could safely forget about it. Both men are then brought outside the compound walls, and the objecting soldier is killed, but Jim ducks away and pretends he's one of the piled-up dead. The soldiers return to the compound, hoping that the zombies will take care of Jim. The zombies do not take care of Jim. While Jim is lying on the ground surrounded by the dead, he sees a jet flying overhead. He remembers what the objecting soldier had said about quarantine. He realizes the guy was right, and the rest of the world has gone on without England and without infection. It turns out there's still a world full of people out there, that this bleak existence isn't the end of things. Before this moment, the survivors had clumped together for safety. Each person, however unpleasant, 
was suddenly extraordinarily valuable because now life was unlikely. When you, the individual, make up 5% of the human population, you're not easily sacrificed. And other survivors are motivated to protect you and tolerate you even if you're a horrible human being. Because you're a human being, a rare thing in a zombie apocalypse. Even the soldiers luring women into sexual servitude are tolerated, important, because they're each 5% of the population. They're necessary. But Jim doesn't just see a plane and a hope. He sees that the soldiers aren't necessary. They're not 5% of the population. They're just another group of jerks, murderous jerks at that, who are offering harm to his loved ones. So he gets up and launches a one-man attack on the compound. He doesn't bother to be kind or careful. He kills anyone who gets in his way, because he knows they'll be trying to do the same to him, and maybe to Selena and Hannah as well. A few hours before, he was in a tolerant mindset, because life was so rare. Now life is cheap again. And he decides the group of murderous jerks don't need to be part of the future equation. The audience is quite happy about this. Is Jim redeeming himself? No, he hasn't done anything. He's never been anything but nice. He had to kill a zombie at one point, but a zombie isn't a person anymore. It's not even an animal. It's a direct and immediate threat to everyone. Jim hasn't done anything hurtful or endangered anyone with impulsive acts or offered to lure women into sexual servitude. He doesn't keep a zombie on a chain like the leader of the compound. He even finds space in his apocalyptic day to be grateful to Selena for her help. It's not Jim who needs redemption, and the ones who might need it, the murderous jerks, don't seem inclined to change their ways, even when their lives are at stake. They're not being redeemed. Jim is exacting retribution against men who definitely deserve it. So why look at 28 Days Later in a conversation about redemption? Because the men in the compound were suddenly, as far as they knew, each 5% of the population. They started out the film as even more important by the numbers than they had been before. They were pre-redeemed, allowed to be flawed and ugly and to smell bad and to have made any number of huge, perhaps unforgivable mistakes, but to be given the chance now to be valued and vital. They were pre-redeemed, and then they let it dribble away. But what about Jim now? After he's eliminated the murderous jerks and saved his loved ones, has he done something wrong now? Or is he justified in what he's done? Hannah and Selena believe he's justified. He thinks he's justified. The audience definitely thinks he's justified. Somehow, in a world where the audience wants all of the human beings to survive the film, in a world where we mourn Mark, whom we only met ten minutes ago, the audience has cast judgment on the men in the compound, and we really don't care if they live or die, even if they had turned out to be 80% of the population. Apparently, redemption depends partly on what you do with your redemption. 
let's shift our attention to Constantine. We've talked about Constantine before, about his sacrifice to save humanity, and how making that sacrifice gives him a ticket back into God's good graces. The only thing that stops Constantine from going to heaven is the devil, who wants to give John the chance to ruin his own redemption. Especially if the devil is watched 28 days later, he has good reason to think that John might be unredeemed if he lives long enough. God's good graces do seem to pivot on a dime. But what kind of person is John for the devil to believe so strongly that he'll mess it up? What kind of crimes has John Constantine committed that earned him a spot in hell in the first place? He had attempted suicide. He had been a teenager, not even a grown-up person, fleeing an extremely painful situation over which he had little or no control. He didn't even actually die. He was resuscitated. But still, for whatever draconian reason, God condemned him to hell for this crime upon himself. After returning to the living, John devotes himself to ridding the world of demons who want to break the rules. He's not even living a nondescript life. He actively works on God's side of the street for the protection of humanity, knowing all the while that in the end he's going to hell anyway. He's still a good man and does good things, even though he knows he's going to hell anyway. Why, if we even consider a failed suicide attempt as a particular crime, would this decision to live such a life of service not in itself be redemptive? Why should any of us bother to be, quote, good, if being good doesn't really mean anything? Why does John bother, when he of all people knows that being good doesn't mean anything? If his life didn't redeem him, then what does? Killing himself, again. In an earlier episode, we look at John's sacrifice, to take his own life in order to save the world, as a positive thing. Of course it is. How could giving your life for the sake of others not be seen as an act of goodness? But why, why is the same action he took in his youth now a redemptive act, when before it condemned him to hell, despite the truly good person he's always been? He's doing it for a different reason, sure, but it's really the same reason he does everything, for the sake of humanity. It's almost as if, rather than being redeemed, John has been noticed again, by a god that had condemned him and then apparently forgotten about him. Suddenly John has done something particularly effective in a moment during which God was paying attention, so John is reassessed and found redeemable. But if God had been paying attention all along, if he had reassessed John years earlier, John may very well have been redeemable then, and he may have decided all those years ago not to smoke, as he does at the end of the film after being given his health back. John clearly has no intention of squandering his redemption, as the jerks in 28 Days Later do. But what does that even mean? His redemption had so little to do with what kind of man he's always been that how can he ever be sure it won't be taken away again if God notices something he doesn't like? What a fickle system of justice. 
What an incomprehensible path to redemption. There's the matter, too, of John's health. The devil gives it back to him, not God. God has allowed John entry into heaven, but he hasn't bothered to save John's life. Of course, what do life and death mean to an eternal being? It's not necessarily meaningful that God was content to let John be dead. After all, he's going to heaven now, which is probably a great place. But the devil gives John his health back because he knows how fickle the redemption system is. Make one mistake and be damned forever, no matter how good a life you've lived? Sounds a bit lopsided. If our actions carry so much weight that one mistake, a mistake that didn't even actually happen since his attempt at suicide failed, if that one mistake can lead to an eternity of torment, why don't our actions carry as much weight when we're doing good things? Is God saying that a lifetime of good is the same on the scales as a single bad act? If so, then does that not imply that doing good just isn't very important? And if doing good just isn't very important, then why is the punishment for not doing it so permanent and severe? Whose side is God on? More to the point, this is a movie. We, the audience, want John to live, and the devil has given John his life back and his health. The devil has given us John Constantine back, so who then has approved John's redemption? We're certainly more on board with the devil's actions here than with God's convoluted, quote, plan. We see a similar struggle between good and evil in Star Wars. The dark side wants to control and dominate others, while the light side wants to not do that, I guess. But the image of redemption is probably most notable in Return of the Jedi, when Darth Vader turns on the Emperor to save Luke. I saw this movie in the theater when it first came out. No one knew what was going to happen. When Darth Vader chooses his son over his master, the theater I was in erupted in cheers. Actual cheers, because we all wanted Vader to do what he did. We had all listened to Luke through the whole movie, trying to reach his dad underneath all the darkness. He said that he felt the good in Vader, the part of him that was still an ordinary man with a soul and a heart. He wanted to believe the best about his father, even if it might just be to feel less conflicted about himself. When I was a kid watching Star Wars, I totally identified with Luke, wanting to prove himself, to save people and help people, wanting to connect with his dad and have cool telekinetic powers. Who wouldn't want that? What kid doesn't want to be important enough to his parents to matter more than any other thing? But when I watched it when I was older, after I had my own children, I saw it from a different perspective. I saw it from Vader's perspective, wanting to be with his son but not knowing how to make up for mistakes he had made, wanting to earn his son's love but believing himself to be too much in the thrall of forces beyond his control. Either way, everyone in the audience wanted Luke to be right and for Vader to choose his son over any other thing, and for the Emperor to be thrown down a hole. We were so willing for Vader to be redeemed, 
we had already redeemed him in our hearts for Luke's sake. We were so thrilled about his redemption that we literally cheered. But the prequels gave us a different glimpse of Vader. We see his humanity, his completely typical teenage thoughts and feelings. We see how the Emperor fooled him, how easy it is for good people to be fooled by manipulative jerks. And we saw in more detail all the things Vader had done. In episodes 4, 5, and 6, we see the stylized Vader, the bad guy who's threatening and dark and mysterious. We know he's the bad guy because other people fear him, but he's also pretty cool, striding around with his cape and being enormous and speaking all James Earl Jonesy. When he and Luke save each other at the end of Return of the Jedi, the only Vader we've known is the cool bad guy whose son ultimately loves him. It's pretty easy to allow that person to be redeemed, because we hadn't really seen any of the things that made everyone call him a bad guy in the first place. But in Episode 3, we learn what Vader has done. He killed his own wife. He killed children. He killed everyone he could find. We get to see the aftermath of Vader's true darkness. The circle of little Padawans who had done their best to fight him, but he had mowed them down. It's not as easy to allow that person to be redeemed. That's a pretty big crime. It's a bit more than a mistake or a misspent youth. It's the unchecked murder of children. But somehow we still mostly see him as redeemed, perhaps because we understand the confusion and helpless anger of a typical teenager, and we have compassion for how he was fooled. Perhaps because it wasn't just his good act that redeemed him, but Luke's willingness to love him anyway. Or perhaps it was just that we had already decided he was redeemed before we met his younger self. So that original feeling won out over the new information. Then again, maybe that's why some people have trouble with the prequels. Maybe the new information, the circle of murdered children, challenged that original feeling of redemption. And now they don't know if they should have been so happy he came back to the good side. Maybe earning redemption is easier if no one looks too closely at the facts. If that's true, though, then what do we do with Radius? In Radius, the main characters, Liam and Jane, don't remember who they were before yesterday. They occasionally get flashes of memory but nothing that makes a lot of sense or answers any questions. Liam learns that if he approaches anyone, they mysteriously fall dead. The only thing that stops this from happening is being less than 50 feet away from Jane. So the two of them stick pretty closely together as they try to solve the mystery of who they are, what happened to cause this bizarre situation, and what they can do to stop it. They become emotionally close as well, no surprise there. And Liam is really motivated to figure this stuff out because he doesn't like having been responsible, even accidentally, for people dying. He doesn't want to kill people. But as they remember more and more, Jane recalls that she had been looking for her missing sister Lily, and that Liam had tried to abduct Jane, which caused the car accident in the lightning storm that triggered this death radius... Thing. 
Jane also finds evidence that Lily had been with Liam and had died at his hands. Apparently Liam did want to kill people. He seems to have taken great delight in it. That was before, though. He doesn't remember it. The flashes of violent acts that he sees cause him as much distress as they would any innocent person. He's certainly been a good man since losing his memory, and his feelings for Jane seem genuine and wholesome. Jane is understandably confused and upset, but how do you just shut off feelings for someone, especially when the person you've met isn't anything at all like the man he was the other day? when functionally, if only because he genuinely doesn't remember doing any of it, he's literally not the same man who committed the crimes. At the same time, Liam is in fact the man who committed the crimes, and since his death radius aura thing will kill anyone who gets near him unless she's close to him, what does this mean for her and her future? Is she supposed to stay beside him for the rest of their lives? knowing that whatever he is now, a week ago he was a serial killer? But he's not a serial killer now, and she has feelings for the person he is now, and the thought of hurting him doesn't appeal to her. Liam takes the burden of that choice off of Jane's shoulders by taking his own life, and as she watches him, knowing what he's about to do, she looks like she doesn't really want him to do it. The audience, who've been following him all this time, don't want him to do it. We like the person he is now, but I guess we don't know how else he's supposed to resolve the death aura situation. He's doing the only decent thing he can do. So is that his redemption? That he eliminates himself from the equation before his death aura hurts anyone else? Or is it that the Liam he is now the Liam we and Jane meet at the beginning of the movie, isn't the same man as the serial killer he used to be. If we genuinely don't know that we've done anything wrong, and we aren't inclined to do anything wrong in the future, is that redeeming enough? If we really don't remember who we used to be, isn't it unfair to be punished for what are technically the actions of someone else? Maybe it's just a re-innocence, a starting over. If that's the case, then does the new innocent us still have to pay for what a former us did? Of course, even if we're re-innocent, that doesn't mean we're better people. Maybe if we are better people now, we'll want to pay for the crimes of our past, because it's the right thing to do, isn't it? If redemption comes from doing better or being a better person, then is punishment for earlier crimes just a denial of redemption? An injustice? Either you've moved past it or you haven't. Either you're redeemed or you're not, right? As we see in all four of these examples, the definition and purpose of redemption are problematic. Are these characters redeemed or unredeemed, as in 28 Days Later, because of some absolute quality or action? Or does it just boil down to whether or not the people watching, the audience, the characters, Constantine's God, are on board with it all? 
we support the re-cheapening of life in 28 days later because we don't like the jerks at the compound. We already saw Vader as a redeemed character, so we don't like being confronted with the horrible things we must have known he did. You don't get to be the scariest guy in a tyrannical regime without doing actual evil. We don't understand why Constantine's God is so incredibly harsh about things. We don't see Constantine as someone who should have to redeem himself. We like Liam because of who he is now. So we're apparently willing to overlook the fact that he murdered a bunch of women before we met him. Basically, the character's redemption seems irrelevant to whether or not we, the audience, consider them redeemable. We decide based on how much we like the character we met, or how much that character takes the actions we want them to take. So what then is redemption? How does someone know they've earned it? Is it when, like Liam, they do what they think will make up for their crimes? Is it when our loved ones forgive us, as Luke forgives his father? But how could that be, when Luke doesn't even know the extent of his father's crimes? Is it when we've changed so much that our crimes feel like they were committed by someone else? Who ultimately gets to decide? A higher power? If so, how will we interpret that higher power's decision? Can we trust that we understand it? Are we the ones who get to decide when we've paid enough or changed enough or done enough? Or is redemption something that's awarded to us by the outside world? If these few movie examples are any indication, there are no clear answers to any of these questions. We love redemption arcs in film. As an audience, we're very willing, even eager, to view a character as redeemed and redeemable. This implies that we crave redemption for ourselves, in our real lives, but we're so uncertain about what it is that we can't even build consistent guidelines for it in the stories we tell. We certainly place high stakes on it. Not having it means Jim gets to kill you. Having it, if you're Liam or John Constantine or Darth Vader, means you die anyway, possibly by your own hand. We all want redemption, but we obviously don't think it's easy or likely if we think it's possible at all. Maybe that's why we focus so much on redemption arcs, why we want to see them in all their ambiguous glory in every story we can squeeze them into precisely because we don't think we can have that for ourselves in our real lives. So we put them in our stories to allow us those few precious moments of wish-fulfillment, an indulging of what we see as the fantasy of being forgiven for our sins or finding peace with ourselves, of finally somehow being good enough. Thanks for joining me today. If you enjoyed it, please spread the word. If you want to check out my other content, you can visit my website at www.smrcooper.com. I hope you have a good week and that things go your way. And if you get a chance, watch a movie.